Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Today we're talking about the three epistles of John and also the epistle of Jude. And these are the last of the collection of epistles in the New Testament. And then we're going to have three lessons on the book of Revelation, also written by the Apostle John. As we mentioned before, two of these epistles are written by half-brothers of the Savior Jesus Christ. The epistle of James, that was so pivotal in the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the latter days, was written by a brother of Christ, a son of Joseph and Mary, so a half-brother of the Savior. And Jude also is a brother of James and a half-brother of Jesus Christ. We don't know too much more about them, but that these were men who believed after the death and resurrection of their half-brother Christ. But wonderful to know that they came to an understanding of who this person was that they had grown up with and seen up close and personal. And then John, the Revelator, is, of course, the author of the Gospel of John that's written to our day, to the last days, to the house of Israel. And then also these three epistles that are relatively short, are written by the Apostle John, it's considered. And then, of course, as I said, we're going to finish the year talking about the book of Revelation. I can hardly believe we are this close to the end of the year. Now, I have gotten a little bit ahead because we have a couple of trips coming up. So I'm just sort of stunned that we're this close to the year's end. It comes upon us so quickly. I don't know if you feel that way. I think most of us do, but it's pretty quick. There are some kind of sweet messages in these epistles and some nice phrasing and so on. We're going to talk about some of it, not all of it, of course, but I hope that you will enjoy studying these chapters on your own, these books and chapters on your own this week. A lot of lovely language. I really see this big message of love that comes from the Apostle John and that echoes, of course, Christ's teaching when he was still in his ministry, which is that by this all men shall know that we are the disciples of Christ if we have love one to another. Like that is the symbol of our Christianity. That is the sign of our discipleship, is our love. And that if we're not getting to this place where we love, then we're missing something. We really need to go back and look at that. But we're going to discuss kind of in detail how we can balance this great love that we should have for our fellow men, but also our love of God. So we're going to get into that pretty soon. I do want to mention this, and forgive me, this is quirky, I know, but you've heard me be quirky before, so here we go again. So this is many years ago. It was before we had even VCRs, let alone DVDs, or now all the streaming that we have. So it was in the fall, and we were in Chicago. Chris's first job was in Chicago after graduate school in Oklahoma. So we were a very young family. I think we had four kids when we moved there and had two more in the three and a half years that we were in Chicago. So it was a very busy time buying our first house at outrageous interest. No kidding. It was like 12 and three quarters percent interest. So I look at the mortgage rates today, which are about eight, and that is awful and very difficult for families these days, but it has been worse and it could go worse. So what can I say? 12 and three quarters percent interest, insane time to buy a house, but we did, barely got out of there alive three and a half years later, took a miracle. But it was during this time and you couldn't just watch any movie you wanted to because that technology had not developed yet. It was shortly to come. It was before we left Chicago that we had VCRs. So anyway, I saw that The Wizard of Oz was going to be on TV. 
And I wanted to make a point of watching it with the kids because you didn't get to see these things just any time. And this was an old classic movie from my youth. And I thought, hey, this would be cool for the kids. So as we're watching this, and I knew the movie pretty well, I have a good memory, so I nothing was really surprising, but I remember kind of keying on this comment about love. So maybe you remember that Dorothy acquires these three companions on her search to find the wizard so that she can go back home. And it's the scarecrow who wants a brain, it's the cowardly lion that wants courage, and it's the tin man that wants a heart. And they all have these requests, so they all go with Dorothy to the wizard, right? And then they discover that the wizard is just a guy who (laughs) kind of landed there and knew some technical abilities or whatever to impress the local residents and was seen as a wizard, even though he's just a regular guy when you look behind the curtain, right? Anyway, while he can't really do anything magical, he does talk to these seekers. They're looking all for some kind of gift or solution or resolution to their need. And he he does do something for the scarecrow and his desire for a brain. And then he does something for the tin man and then the cowardly lion. And anyway, when he gets to the tin man, he gives him this little pen that has a heart on it. And it's like a clock. It has a little watch in it or whatever. So it's ticking. And the Tin Man is thrilled. But the wizard gives him this counsel and says, remember, my friend. Let's see if I can remember this close enough. It's something like, remember, my friend, a heart is not measured by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. Let me repeat that. I'm pretty sure this is what it says, very close to this. A heart is not measured by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. Now, at first, and I remember, you know, I'm watching this with my kids and I'm not paying maybe super close attention, but that for some reason stuck in my mind. And I thought about it because I thought at first that sounded kind of like, I don't know, self-aggrandizing or self-serving that like, wow, I'm loved by so many people. So that must mean that I have a wonderful heart. And that's not the intention of that idea. As I thought about it, just here and there for a little while, I realized that what it means is that if we truly love in the way that Christ loves, people respond to that. That love becomes an energy, a kind of a tangible force that envelops people with care and concern in the way that the Savior would show, in the way that our Heavenly Father loves, and that it sparks love in response. Because love like that is rare. There are a lot of people who claim to love and who do love. But love is such a broad term, and it covers a wide variety of emotion that may not all be healthy love. I think that's pretty clear, right? Like, think about how you can use the word love to kind of cover a multitude of sins, really. Like, you might hear this in a horrendous case of murder or something that, like, well, I loved him so much I had to kill him. Or, you know, I loved this person so much so I had to, you know, lock him in a room so that they wouldn't leave me. I mean, love can be really unhealthy. 
Certainly, we've talked about permissive parenting, which is definitely a kind of effort to manifest love from a parent to a child, and yet it's incredibly destructive. Permissive love does not bless children. It ultimately costs them a great deal and costs our society at large a great deal. So there are lots of things that we call love that may or may not be healthy love. But what the wizard here is talking about, at least in my opinion, is that if we love people in a healthy way, it generates love in response. Because it's rare and wonderful to be loved in a healthy, godlike way. So I guess, you know, we could say that our hearts could be measured by how many people will miss us when we're gone. Like how many people will miss that kind of love that we offer or that we try to display if we're not there or after we die? And I think that's important. I think it's important that we not think that love can exist only in me without it having its resonance with the people that I love. So you know how this can be. Like sometimes children don't understand love for what it is, or they might reject the kind of love that we're offering. Let's say we are good authoritative parents and we aren't permissive. And our kids might say, you know, well, you don't really love me or you would let me do this and that and the other. And so it's often misunderstood. But as they grow older, what we typically see is that kids start to understand that in a dangerous world, it's good to have structure and limits. And especially if we're teaching them those principles of critical thinking and judgment and evaluation, all that good stuff, then they come to understand sooner rather than later in many cases that, wow, that was a love worth having. And I don't want to be without the love of a parent who really has my back in eternal ways, temporal and eternal. And they won't just tell me what I want to hear to satisfy the natural man, but they will tell me what they believe is best for me eternally, you know, in this life and in the next. So anyway, I guess I just want to say that love is a really complex idea when you start to look at what it means and what's healthy and what's unhealthy and how people distort the idea of love and recognize that if we love in the way the Savior loves, then we will ultimately have that kind of response from people that the Savior gets from his followers and disciples. And this is from one of the epistles of John. I'm jumping ahead. Where does it say this? I think it might be even in the... Yes, at the end of the first epistle of John, chapter 4. There is still a chapter 5. But in chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. I've loved that scripture and I've thought about it a lot over my life that we love him because he first loved us. So there's a discussion here or a statement here about reciprocity that true love, real love generates love in return. And if we really love in healthy ways, healthy people love back. Now those are some conditions because not everybody's healthy, not everybody's aware, not everybody understands what's truth and what constitutes real and true and authentic love. But we need to figure that out. And we're going to talk about a lot of that today. Okay, let's just quickly hit some of the highlights here. Again, just a smattering, nothing like a comprehensive treatment of these wonderful verses and chapters. But here we're going to talk about 1 John chapter 1. Just, you know, making a few comments. Verse 5 of chapter 1. 
This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Fellowship with Christ means fellowship with the light. Becoming a child of Christ, a disciple of Christ, and being born again as a child of God, well, first as a child of Christ and then as a child of God in the final judgment, does not ever coincide with walking in darkness if we don't understand the light of the gospel truth. And remember from section 93 in the DNC that light, truth, and intelligence are all the same thing. Light, truth, and intelligence. God has all truth, all light, all intelligence. And if we desire to receive that, we need to receive the light and let it cast out the darkness that can surround us, but must not be inside us. If we feel that there's darkness in us, let us address it. Let us go and seek truth, light, truth, and intelligence to chase out the darkness, to fill us with so much light that the darkness has no place. Goes on in verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. And then this important statement in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then it talks about how we can repent and be forgiven. But it is true that we are all sinners. And in our quest for truth, for light, for goodness, for righteousness, for love, we need to be honest about our failings and be humble enough to acknowledge that without Christ, all of us are going to hell. All of us would have fallen so short that we could not save ourselves. And again, this beautiful phrase, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And this is this great love that Christ gave to us this opportunity to progress, to grow, to become, to receive all that the Father would like to give us. Could talk about that for a long time. Let's go on to chapter two and just look at a couple of verses here. This is verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he satisfies the need for punishment in our behalf so that we don't have to spend that time in hell balancing the scales of the universe. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So again, we have the same phrase about, you know, you're a liar, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth isn't in you. If you say in the first chapter, if we say that we have no sin, and then here, if we say that we know Christ, but we don't keep the commandments. So these two things are kind of being put on a parallel plane. These are two giant lies that we can tell ourselves. First, that we have no sin, or second, that we know Christ when we are not following his commandments, not keeping his commandments. Those are lies. And think of how many times we hear those lies in our world today. And it's not just now. I mean, it was obviously at this time in the early Christian church as well and throughout mankind's sojourn on the earth. But these are lies. To say that we can, you know, be disdainful about the Ten Commandments or any of the other teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that we are still in touch with him, that we know him, that we have a relationship with the Christ that is of value and priority in our lives, but we're not following or keeping his commandments, that's a lie. 
going on. Whoso keepeth his word, verse 5, in him verily is the love of God perfected. And that's how we know him, is by keeping his commandments. And we've talked about that before, where Paul teaches that if you want to know of the truthfulness of these things, you have to do them. So there is always this action that is involved in knowledge. We cannot gain intelligence, light, truth, and intelligence, if we don't act in light, truth, and intelligence, meaning keeping the commandments. So this reminded me, of course, of Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same message, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, which is sometimes written, you never knew me. And that might be a little more accurate, in my opinion. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know, I mean, there could be lots of things that a person does, but if we're not really keeping the commandments, if they are instead still hiding sins that exist in them and thinking it's a point system, if I do all these good things, then maybe I'll get enough points that it'll take care of the demerits here for a sin that I'm not willing to repent of or that I haven't really wanted to divest myself of. And that will never work. We have to have sufficient integration in our lives, which is that capstone characteristic of integrity, of course, where we work to close the gap between the ideal and the real. Again, I've spoken about this in the past. Everybody has ideals, but their real behavior falls short of those ideals. And that's okay as long as we are working to close the gap and we're not trying to dumb down the ideals. Or as another alternative that I've discussed, become hypocrites by pretending we're really religiously adhering to the ideals while we're really covering our sins. That's what Christ is addressing here through John and through the report of Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew. This is such a critical point that to know him, to be known of him, is to follow him and to close that gap between the real and the ideal behaviors. And Christ facilitates that. We don't have to be anal or anxious or perfectionistic about it. We just need to be diligent. We need to continue to try to close the gap with authenticity and humility, acknowledging the truth of our failings and coming to Christ, asking the Father in the name of Christ to help us to close that gap. It can be done. Verse 9, let's just look at a few of these things quickly. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. So now we start this really strong message about loving our brother. In verse 10, the same thing, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light. Then verse 15, I'm not going to catch all of them, but love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So again, where is our love? If we love our brother, that is a sign of our discipleship. If we don't, we're lying to ourselves to think that we are disciples of Christ. And then chapter 3, Verses 2 and 3, this is very familiar, I hope often quoted. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, there are still some mysteries to be revealed, of course. We don't have perfect clarity and understanding of what happens after this life. We're given a lot of information, but it's not specific in many situations. It'll have to be revealed what we will be. But we know that when he, meaning Christ, shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
that's beautiful. And it is certainly a goal to be striven for that, that to become conformed to the image of Christ so that when he comes, we are clearly his people. He will know us because we have tried to close the gap between the ideal and the real and become true disciples, not yet perfected, but definitely diligent, not hiding our sins, not rationalizing our sins, not glossing over our problems or our weaknesses or our failings, but diligently putting them on the altar and seeking to improve. And then with the powerful enabling atonement of Jesus Christ, we can close that gap. We can become conformed to his image so that when he appears, we will be clearly in his image and clearly known by him. Then we're just going to jump ahead to verse 7. Little children. I love it when the Lord addresses us so tenderly, right? Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Okay, so you know he's talking about critical thinking here. (laughs) He's talking about judgment. And he's saying, let's just review. Somebody who does righteous works is righteous. Someone who does evil works is unrighteous and is of the devil. Like, this is not that complicated. Where does an action lead somebody? What actions do they manifest? And how does that demonstrate their allegiance to either Christ or the adversary? And make a judgment. Use critical thinking. That's what he's talking about here. Again, talks about love again. Verse 18 My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we really have to put up or shut up when it comes to love and showing the love of Christ. Again, in chapter four, it starts right off in verse one with some more admonition for critical thinking and correct judgment. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Test them. It says in the the footnote, prove by trial, discern. All of that is critical thinking. It's make a judgment, be evaluative. And this would be a great week to talk to your children, your families, your loved ones about critical thinking and about righteous judgment. Again, you can pull up that Elder Oak speech from the BYU devotional called Judge Not and Judging. It's a terrific speech if you haven't reviewed it for a while or if your children haven't heard about it. Good for us all to review, but this is what is required. We're in a world with so much deception, so many lies. Satan is having his day that if we are not gaining this understanding of how to judge correctly, we can easily be deceived. We can be completely taken in by sophistry. But if we learn to be critical thinkers and teach our children so to do, there is safety. There's safety in the application of wisdom, which is critical thinking. Okay, we're going to go on to more talk about love. Verse 7 in chapter 4, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, this is verse 8, knoweth not God, for God is love. Just a pitch to remember that, because so often God is characterized as harsh and unyielding and unkind, especially in a world that wants to throw all the standards under the bus. But God is love, and that can help us if we are trying to love in his way. We know that the world may not understand it all the time, but that it ultimately is pure 
godlike love. Verse 12, just want to mention the Joseph Smith translation correction. No man has seen God at any time. And the Joseph Smith translation corrects that no man has seen God at any time except them who believe. This is a pretty important change or correction. And then we have several references there in the footnote that talk about how God has appeared to righteous believers for a purpose. And of course, they had to be translated in order to not be withered by the glory of God. But that this verse has been used in its incorrect form that we have in the King James translation to act like God would not come to Joseph Smith or that God wouldn't come to any of his prophets, which we know is not true. So the correction is significant here. There are many people who have been deceived by that verse. We're going to go on to verse 18, that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. And then again in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Boy, ponder on that one for like the rest of your life. (laughs) I will. I will because I think it's so important and so beautiful and so clear, so crystal clear in its truth. 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. In verse 7, there are many deceivers. Note that, again, this is not the first time on the planet that there have been antichrists or people with full of sophistry or trying to deceive, working on behalf of our adversary, the great adversary, Satan, who wants to destroy us. It's always been that way. And then this beautiful verse that many of us really can resonate with if we're parents in the third epistle of John, chapter four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Well, that is a great joy. That is a tremendously deep joy. Now, we may not have that in this life. We may not have that for a season in this life. But do not despair. If we keep our covenants, we've talked about this so many times, parents are given incredible reassurances through the prophets, through multiple prophets. It's not a random or rare statement, but so many prophets have said if parents will stay true and diligent, that their children will not be forgotten of the Lord. They will not be forgotten. God will reach out to them and continue to work in their lives. And it's not over till it's over. Hold that thought, brothers and sisters, and hold it against the current that we seem to see these days, which is that parents want to follow their kids right over the cliff. I've talked to actually have more than a few stake presidents in this last year or so who have all expressed concern that so many of their stalwart church members are leaving the church because their children leave the church. And it particularly revolves around the LGBTQ stuff, as you know, that so many parents are seeing it as the ultimate parental love to follow their children out of the church. But that is the opposite of love. That's the opposite. To throw away the only hope of life and salvation in order to sort of show our allegiance? Like, that's not true benefit to anybody. Like, here I am standing by, you know, the stake in the ground that can hold us to the truth. And then if my child leaves, I'm just going to leave that stake behind too. I'm going to leave that foundation and go off into the wilderness with somebody who's lost and I'll be lost to myself. And I won't be able to call upon the powers of heaven because I will have abandoned my right to those covenants. 
How tragic is that? And yet we are seeing it all over the place. It's actually advocated for by some of our sophists these days, by some of our deceivers that are in the church who are trying to be advocates for LGBTQ groups and being allies and trying to be all loving. And they take this idea of love and they make it sound like true love means that, you know, you would leave the church to support your child. What? Leave God in order to show a broken version of love to my child? How can I even love completely if I don't have the love of God? And if I haven't put that first love first, as Elder Christofferson has put it, we're going to talk about this right now. So here's my talk about love. And actually, I'm going to quote heavily from President Oaks and President Nelson a little bit, as well as Elder Christofferson. Really, some of our powerful voices of truth that I'm so grateful for. You know they reaffirmed a lot of these things just in the recent conference, but I'm going back because this has been a theme for a few years now. And it's always been a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but real emphasis has been given to these two great commandments in the recent years and for a really good purpose. It's because we are struggling. We're struggling as a world, but we're struggling even as a church membership to get this right, to understand how to keep both of these great commandments. So this is President Oaks in October 2019, in a speech in conference called The Two Great Commandments. Worth reviewing, it's a great speech, but I'm going to share some bits of it today. President Oaks was addressing the Sisters of the Church in that Saturday evening conference session that they did sometimes for sisters. Here it is. My dear sisters in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but of course he he could be addressing every single one of us. So brothers, this is for you too. I greet you as divinely assigned guardians of the eternal family. Now, that's an interesting statement. He's talking to women as the divinely assigned guardians of the eternal family. Now, certainly, I feel confident in extending that title to you, brethren, as well. Fathers and mothers, men who hold the priesthood, women who want to keep to their covenants, we all have this responsibility. He is talking about how women do tend to gather hearth and home together and can be a very powerful force in maintaining the strength of our families. But we need to work together, ideally. So I greet you as divinely assigned guardians of the eternal family. He quotes President Nelson as saying this, This church was restored so that families could be formed, sealed, and exalted eternally. That is the purpose of the restoration is to create eternal families. That is the pinnacle of the purpose of the plan. That's the pinnacle. Lots of other good things happen, but this is the pinnacle goal. So that families could be formed, sealed, and exalted eternally. That teaching has important implications for persons who identify as LGBT, commonly referred that way. President Nelson has also reminded us that we don't have to always agree with each other to love each other. Now, that's an important point that we're going to come back to again and again. We don't have to agree to love. We need to separate those things and realize we can care about somebody even when they are thinking and acting in ways that are very different from what we choose to do in our thinking and in our actions. Again, as President Nelson taught, God's laws are motivated entirely 
by his infinite love for us and his desire for us to become all we can become. Now, Elder Oaks also gave a speech about this many years ago called Love and Law. Another great speech to review if you're interested because that is a really important message that, again, many people in our day are not getting and they are really protesting against. They act as if love means total indulgence of the natural man. That that if you really love, you just leave people alone to go to hell in their own way, to destroy themselves according to their own pleasure. And while, yes, people have agency and ultimately they can make that decision to either be saved or be damned, If we really love people, we keep inviting them to the truth. We invite them into the path of salvation and potential exaltation. And we stand for those things as witnesses and as examples. Are imperfect examples true? But if we're being diligent, they're not going to be hypocritical. They might be, so we need to examine ourselves for any hypocrisy. But if we are working on not being hypocrites, then we can also exemplify the happiness that is to be obtained in this path towards eternal family life in exaltation in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. Going on, President Nelson taught many countries have legalized same-sex marriage. As members of the church, we respect the laws of the land, including civil marriage. The truth is, however, that in the beginning, marriage was ordained by God. And to this day, it is defined by him as being between a man and a woman. God has not changed his definition of marriage. Now, we are getting this message again and again in our recent times here from our prophets. And it is a message of love. Now, I know a lot of people are feeling really bruised by this. And we see some of that online where people are complaining about how closed-minded this is and how hateful and whatever. But just because somebody sees it as hate doesn't mean it is. This is love, to teach the truth. I don't want somebody in my life to tell me they love me and then they lie to me. How could you have a relationship with such a person if you didn't know what was coming out of their mouth was truth or lies? That doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work in friendship. It doesn't work between parents and children. It can never work. A a true relationship and true love has to be based on truth. So how does it help to tell people something that isn't true just to calm their natural man desires or their mistaken ways? Like that's not real love. Continuing. God has also not changed his law of chastity. Requirements to enter the temple have not changed. President Nelson reminded all of us that our commission, so he was speaking to the apostles, our commission as apostles is to teach nothing but truth. That commission does not give apostles the authority to modify divine law. Thus, my sisters, the leaders of the church, must always teach the importance, the unique importance of marriage between a man and a woman and the related law of chastity. Later in the speech, President Oaks now says, that is the destiny we desire for all we love, meaning that pinnacle of the plan. Eternal marriage in the highest level of the celestial kingdom. That's the destiny we desire for all we love. Because of that love, We cannot let our love supersede the commandments and the plan and work of God. 
which we know will bring those we love their greatest happiness. Again, it would be a total betrayal of love if we lied to them and said like, oh, you can be as happy as anybody even if you break all these commandments. That's a lie. I don't want somebody coming back to me in the hereafter and saying like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me that this was the path to happiness and this was the path of destruction? Didn't you care about me? I do care. So truth is what I want to share. President Oaks continues, there are many we love, including some who have the restored gospel, who do not believe in or choose not to follow God's commandments about marriage and the law of chastity. What about them? And then he talks about that second great commandment, which is loving our neighbor. So let's go on and first talk about how God's love provides for those loved ones. Modern revelation teaches that God has provided a plan for a mortal experience in which all can choose obedience to seek his highest blessings or make choices that lead to one of the less glorious kingdoms. Because of God's great love for all of his children, those lesser kingdoms are still more wonderful than mortals can comprehend. In other words, if you really reject what can be the pinnacle of human fulfillment and potential, okay, God still has a plan that is merciful, and there will be less glorious kingdoms that can be inhabited by those who reject all that God offers. And it is still more wonderful than we can imagine. Later, President Oaks continues, how do we keep the commandment to love our neighbors? We seek to persuade our members that those who follow lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender teachings and actions should be treated with the love our Savior commands us to show toward all our neighbors. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve declared The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us to love and treat all people with kindness and civility, even when we disagree. Further, we must never persecute those who do not share our beliefs and commitments. Regretfully, some persons facing these issues continue to feel marginalized and rejected by some members and leaders in our families, wards, and stakes. We must all strive to be kinder and more civil. So this is a constant, right? And again, remember, as I said before, that some people will interpret it as hatred, even if it's not hatred. They might think that we hate them because we support marriage being between a man and a woman. But that's not hatred. That's allegiance to the truth. So while others might see it as hatred, that doesn't mean it is. But to counteract that, we need to go even maybe a little bit above and beyond to demonstrate kindness and civility and caring, that we can disagree and we can still be kind. That's really important. Otherwise, we're giving up on the fruit of gospel living, which is love. And we really need not to give up on the ultimate fruit of gospel living. Again, I'm back to Marvin J. Ashton's quote from The Tongue Could Be a Sharp Sword, April 92, The best and clearest indicator that we are progressing spiritually and coming to Christ is the way we treat other people. So if we really want to progress spiritually and come to Christ, it does have to manifest that kind of fruit in our association. Now, I do want to mention, though, that it is difficult. I mean, a dear friend of mine has a child who identifies as one of the LGBT things, and they've decided to not be active in the church and to live with a partner of the same sex. 
And while my friend's family continue to try to invite them and be kind and be respectful and loving, the partner called up every family member of my friend and asked them how they voted in certain candidates or certain situations, how they would vote or how they chose to believe, and then considered that to be hateful and decided to separate the LGBT couple from my friend's family because they saw it as hatred. It wasn't hatred. It was just adherence to the beliefs taught in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is tricky, and I recognize that. I'm also going to say something about parents who have a child that declares themselves transgender or decides to be or feels that they are transgender. And I recognize there's a lot of pain and injury in that. Nevertheless, we are not serving them well if we don't tell them the truth. And I recognize this is a really tough thing in some cases, because the kids, again, could interpret it as hatred. You hate me, and that's why you're not accepting me for who I am or who they think they are. But we can't fall for that kind of attack. We can't be deluded by that kind of attack just because they're not choosing to recognize love as adherence to a truth that they don't believe doesn't mean that it's not love. So we continue to try to be kind and not contentious and profess and demonstrate by our actions, not just our words, but our actions that we do care and that we do love, but that we love God and will not yield doctrinal points that can ultimately lead us to the most potential joy, fulfillment, and happiness that any of us as children of God could experience. Going on, President Oak says, we must try to keep both of the great commandments. To do so, we walk a fine line between law and love. This walk requires us to seek divine inspiration. Isn't that the truth? We do need to hear him for our individual journeys so that we can interpret these things correctly and so on. It will not violate basic principles. God does not work against himself. He won't tell us to lie to someone. He won't tell us to try to change divine doctrine, to try to satisfy somebody's feelings. He will not do that. But we can seek the inspiration of the Spirit on how to communicate these things and how to reach out in the right ways. Continuing, our walk demands that we not compromise on commandments, but show forth a full measure of understanding and love. Our walk must be considerate of children who are uncertain about their sexual orientation, but it discourages premature labeling. Because in most children, and this is statistically correct, such uncertainty decreases significantly over time. In other words, it has been summarized that gender is very fluid, especially in those adolescent years and early adulthood, and that it becomes more settled as kids grow up. But not if they are rewarded or endorsed or whatever for their temporary feelings. They're very often temporary. They may not always go away with increased maturity, but many of them do. So to prematurely label our kids is not helping them or anybody else. So we should be considerate of children who are uncertain, but discourage premature labeling because in most children, such uncertainty decreases significantly over time. Our walk opposes recruitment away from the covenant path. So we are not going to ally ourselves or show membership or allegiance with groups that want to pull people into paths that are not consistent with gospel covenant path. And it denies support to any who lead people away from the Lord. 
So please do not encourage or support in any way organizations or people who are trying to pull people from the covenant path. That's not real love. That's certainly not gospel love. Later, mothers and fathers and all of us are responsible to teach both of the two great commandments for the women of the church. And maybe you're familiar with this because he's going to quote a prophecy by President Kimball. For the women of the church, President Spencer W. Kimball described their duty in this great prophecy. Much of the major growth that is coming to the church in the last days will come because many of the good women of the world will be drawn to the church in large numbers. This will happen to the degree that the women of the church reflect righteousness and articulateness, interesting word, articulateness in their lives, and to the degree that the women of the church are seen as distinct and different from the women of the world. The peculiar people we were talking about last week. Are we seen as distinct and different or are we unable to be discerned, you know, if we're standing in a crowd? Do we blend in with Babylon? Do we look the same as everybody else? Do we act the same way? Do we indulge in the same media and behaviors and dress and standards as the rest of the world? Then we are selling our birthright for a mess of pottage and we will not build the kingdom in the way that we were foreordained to do. Going on with President Kimball's quote, thus it will be that female exemplars of the church will be a significant force in both the numerical and the spiritual growth of the church in the last days. This is an amazing prophecy. If we will stand as witnesses of Christ and we will be righteous and articulate, so we need to be critical thinkers again. How else can we explain why we do what we do if we don't understand the gospel well enough to articulate it or we don't understand these issues well enough to discuss them? Now, we don't have to be the most articulate. We don't have to be perfect in our understanding or speech, but we do need to not let ourselves off the hook too much either. These issues are important, and we need to study the words of the prophets. They give us the way to articulate, and these words are beautiful. Like the words we're discussing today, many of these could be repurposed in our own conversations so that we can explain in clear ways how we want to love God and have total allegiance to Him, and nevertheless, how important it is for us to love all people, all our neighbors, and that is everyone. Okay, speaking of that prophecy of President Kimball, and this is President Oaks sharing this, President Russell M. Nelson declared that the day that President Kimball saw and foresaw is today. You are the women he foresaw. Little did we who heard that prophecy 40 years ago realize that among those the women of this church may save will be their own dear friends and family who are currently influenced by worldly priorities and devilish distortions. So he's talking about this whole issue of sexuality and marriage and chastity. And he's saying that 40 years ago, when President Kimball made that prophecy, we might not have understood how close to home this would strike, that this could concern our own families our own friends and neighbors and loved ones, and that we need to be firmly in the Lord's camp, that we need to be righteous and loyal to the gospel law, 
and recognize the love that is therein. And then, yes, we need to show forth godly love, whether or not it is interpreted that way. We need to love in a way that when they are in their moments of clarity, they will recognize the love and care and concern that we are showing and that it is all done in kindness. Okay, let me quote from Elder Christofferson a little bit. This is also great. Putting the first commandment first, meaning our love for God, right? Love the Lord thy God does not diminish or limit our ability to keep the second commandment. To the contrary, it amplifies and strengthens it. Our love of God elevates our ability to love others more fully and perfectly because we, in essence, partner with God in the care of his children. Now, that's from a great BYU devotional given in March 2022. So these are pretty recent speeches, brothers and sisters, because this topic is so relevant for now. And the speech was called The First Commandment First. I'm going to quote from that devotional address. And of course, he reviews the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is likened to it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I ask you to consider, says Elder Christofferson, the majesty of the two great commandments on which hang all the law and prophets, and also why the first commandment is first. What is the significance of that order for us? The second commandment is a brilliant guide for human interaction. Consider what the world would be like if the second commandment were universally accepted and followed. Think of what would not happen. Among other things, there would be no violent crime, no abuse, no fraud, no persecution or bullying, no gossip, and certainly no war. The second commandment is essentially the golden rule. Whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. As disciples, we should be deliberate in living the second commandment by reaching out in love and empathy to those that the Lord defines as our neighbors, and that is everyone. To support the law and the prophets... That body of truth and commandments established by God and taught by his prophets, both the first and second commandments are needed working in tandem. But why is the first commandment the overarching priority? At least three reasons come to mind. And I really like this. I think Elder Christofferson does a marvelous job. First is the foundational nature of this first commandment. Wonderful and essential as the second commandment is, it does not provide the necessary foundation for our lives, nor is it intended to. Obeying the second commandment makes us nice people. But to what end? What is the point of our existence? For purpose, direction, and meaning, we must look to the first and great commandment. In other words, God has a plan, and it's a customized curriculum for each one of us, but a general invitation to all to come unto Christ and be saved, to come unto Christ and through covenant and through obedience to those covenants, and then the temple ordinances which we make available to everyone through proxy work, all could come into the highest level of the celestial kingdom. There is no limit. There's no quota at which point they'll close the doors. Every single child of God could enter into that level of exaltation if we all heeded the invitation and followed it in a desire to please God and to fulfill the purpose for which we were individually created. So that invitation is for all. And if we don't understand 
and love God, then what is the purpose of being here on this earth? Just a little sojourn away from the family ranch? (laughs) No, there's a purpose to mortality, and that is to prepare to meet God again. If we desire, we can overcome the natural man, integrate spirit and flesh in a way that is wholly oriented toward the good, and we can become the pinnacle of our potential. Okay, the second reason that Elder Christofferson posits that the first commandment is first is saying that if we ignore the first commandment or reverse the order of the first and second commandments, this risks a loss of balance in life and risks destructive deviations from the path of happiness and truth. Now, we've been talking about this. If we think that loving our neighbor is more important than loving God, and then we compromise the commandments, or we dismiss them or turn away from them in order to make people feel good, we are totally losing our balance. And we're inviting these destructive deviations from the true path of happiness and truth. Love of God and submission to him provides checks against our tendency to corrupt virtues by pushing them to the extreme. Okay, that's a great concept right there that we can take a virtue and push it to the extreme and it becomes a vice and it corrupts the virtue completely. And that's what is happening every day in our world. People are taking this idea of loving their neighbor and to do it, they're throwing God under the bus, throwing out the scriptures, certainly throwing out the family proclamation, which is inconvenient to too many people these days, they think. And so then they're willing to, you know, toss it back and act as if there isn't eternally enlightening truth in that wonderful declaration. And what a North Star for us and for our children if we use it right. But if we reverse those two commandments, we're in serious trouble. Compassion for our neighbor's distress, for example, even when the suffering is brought about by his or her own transgression is noble and good. But an unbridled compassion, that would be the virtue taken to an extreme, right? Unbridled compassion could lead us, like Alma's son Corianton, to question God's justice and misunderstand his mercy. And maybe you can go back and review if you'd like to in those chapters in Alma where he's talking to his son Corianton, explaining about justice and mercy, and ultimately showing that mercy cannot rob justice or God would cease to be God. That is a powerful principle that's related to what we're talking about today. There are those, for example, says Elder Christofferson, who believe that loving others mean we must twist or ignore God's laws in a way or ways that advocate or condone sin. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland addressed this misperception when he taught, and I love this quote, I actually really, I've quoted it often myself. This is Elder Holland, quoted by Elder Christofferson. So if love is to be our watchword, as it must be, then by the word of him who is love personified, we must forsake transgression and any hint of advocacy for it. Do not follow your friends and family over the cliff, brothers and sisters. Please do not. That is not real love. If love is our watchword, as it must be, then by the word of him who is love personified, we must forsake transgression and any hint of advocacy for it. Jesus clearly understood, continues President Holland, what many in our modern culture seem to forget, that there is a crucial difference between the commandment to forgive sin 
which Christ had an infinite capacity to do, and the warning against condoning it, which he never, ever did even once. Because it is not godlike love to condone sin. Why would we condone something that is destroying the people we love? This is why, as we've mentioned so often in the first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 31, I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And it's because of his great love, not because he lacks love or his love is insufficient or he's unkind or impatient. No, it's because of his perfect love that he knows sin is the enemy. And if we condone sin, we do not love in a true way, in a way that can bring about good. Third, this is back to Elder Christofferson, the first commandment must be first because attempts at love that are not grounded in God's truths risk harming the person or persons we are trying to help. That's what we're talking about. Well, those are three reasons why the first commandment is first, but we should probably list one more that is in reality sufficient in itself. The first commandment is first because God put it first. The first and great commandment provides the true paradigm for life. President Ezra Taft Benson once observed, when we put God first, all other things fall into their proper place or drop out of our lives. Our love of the Lord will govern the claims for our affection, the demands on our time, the interests we pursue, and the order of our priorities. Later, Elder Christofferson says, is it too much to ask that in return we center our lives in God and love him as he has loved us with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How can we resist his love for us and withhold our own love from him, knowing that our love of God is the key to our own happiness? Later, I am confident that our Heavenly Father and His Beloved Son are pleased with your individual kindnesses, however limited or insignificant they may seem in a vast world of need. Every act and offering matters. I really like that. I really like that. And I try to remember that, brothers and sisters. I try to be kind when I'm just out there, you know, like, you know, you see people in the parking lot when you're going into a place or you see them at the checkout counter or you see them, you know, the server in the restaurant or the, you know, someone helping you in the shop or, you know, whomever it is that we interact with, are we, no matter how limited or insignificant our little individual kindnesses may seem, every act and every offering matters to God. I love that. I am also confident that they are pleased with what we are doing collectively as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in association with others. And he's speaking then of the vast humanitarian involvement of the church with other good groups to try to alleviate concerns in the world. Later, keeping the first commandment also means promoting the Lord's cause in the earth, helping to bring to pass the eternal life of our Father's children Let me mention just one more way we enshrine the first commandment as first in our lives. It is to live with a sense of accountability to God. Accountability for the direction of our lives and for each day of our lives. That means resisting and overcoming temptation, repenting and forgiving, combating selfishness, 
taking upon us the name of Christ, and developing the character of Christ. It means watching even our thoughts and our words as well as our actions. This is not a burdensome, weigh-you-down kind of accountability. Rather, it is the acknowledgement of a wise, interested, and caring father who knows the path to fulfillment and ultimate joy. It is a recognition that he has provided an opportunity for us that we are incapable of creating for ourselves and one that we cannot achieve without his help. And it is in the context of this accountability that we feel God's good pleasure in us. We come to understand that he is rejoiced with even the smallest efforts we make to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What greater reassurance and peace could you have than the witness of the Holy Spirit to your spirit that your Heavenly Father and your Redeemer are pleased with you and your course in life? The bottom line is that God commands us to love Him because of what He knows it will do for us. He commands us to love one another for the same reason. Love of God transforms us. Love of God transforms our love for each other. This love is requisite for our coming to know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. It is the key to our becoming like Him. Brothers and sisters, we have amazing prophets and apostles. I thank God for every one of them and their sweet messages of truth and love that can help us to abide in truth and love as we seek to choose glory, as we seek to choose the celestial glory, and to become a Zion individual and Zion people, that we can establish Zion in preparation for the coming of the Lord as directed by his prophets and in harmony with their teachings. Brothers and sisters, we are so abundantly blessed that we can do this in our lifetimes. We can do it. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.